Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello, my name is Megan O'Hare and welcome to our podcast recording for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. This week I'm joined by three panellists from Leeds Beckett University who are going to talk about their research which is focused on improving care and support for people with dementia and their families. A bit of background into the topic today. In 2013, the James Lind Alliance and Alzheimer's Society undertook a priority-setting partnership. Essentially, this was a big survey to discover what people feel future research priorities should be. This may or may not be a surprise to hear that nine out of the top ten were related to care. Coming from a basic biology background as I do, I was a little bit surprised. But here are the top three. Uh, What are the most effective components of care that keep a person with dementia as independent as they can be at all stages of the disease in all care settings? How can the best ways to care for people with dementia, including results from research findings, be effectively disseminated and implemented into care practice? And what is the impact of an early diagnosis of dementia? And how can primary care support a more effective route to diagnosis? The panel today have been working on addressing these priorities with the research they do. So I'd like to welcome Alice Griffiths, a research fellow. Hello. Um, Rachel Kelly, also a research fellow. Hello. And Cara Sass, a PhD student in your third year? Second year. Second year. (laughs) Great. So maybe let's start by hearing from each of you a little bit about your own research projects and then how you all link together. So Cara, shall we start with you? What's your PhD topic on? Sure. Um, So I'm looking at what the impact is of um, sporting-based reminiscence. So um, working with the Sporting Memories Network. It's a charity uh, that's UK-wide. Looking at what their community groups are doing for um, men who live with dementia specifically. Okay, and who funds you? So I'm university funded. Okay. Um, so I'm I'm on a three year PhD, um, fully funded by Leeds Beckett University. So it's it's purely full time for me. Okay, great. Uh, Rachel. So the the work I do is is mainly um, looking at how we can improve care for people with dementia and their families using quite qualitative methods. So I've used quite a lot of ethnography. Um, to either look in the past about how much families were involved when someone with dementia goes into hospital. Uh, That's a project that I finished um, as part of my PhD and then I'm working on some research that's starting now looking at how we can improve care for people who have dementia and cancer. Um, Both those projects are funded by the NIHR. Okay, great. And Alice? So I'm the quantitative researcher that goes alongside Rachel Um, and I came from a mental health research background and was looking at the mental health of people working in care homes and kind of moved into dementia research that way and um, for the past few years I've been working mainly on the EPIC trial which was also NIHR funded looking at um, whether dementia care mapping was effective and cost effective within care homes. Okay so you are mainly based in care homes your research? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm mainly based in care homes. Okay, yeah. uh, Rachel, you're, you deal with people mainly based in hospitals, is that right? Yeah, it's been mainly based in hospitals, although we work together quite a lot, so I have also done some work in care homes on the EPIC trial as well. Okay, great. So uh, just picking up the, one of the priorities that we mentioned earlier about effective components of care that keep a person with dementia as independent as they can, your PhD, Cara, kind of 
takes that and looks at sports-based reminiscence with, uh, well, it says here for men. Is it specifically for men? Is that um, something that you found that sporting reminiscence really resonates with men with dementia? Yeah, I'm taking more of a focus on the the gendered experience of of living with dementia. So there is there's more research into what it's like for women who are diagnosed and living with dementia. Um, but in general, there isn't a lot really that looks at the the differences between men and women. And what we've found um, is that there's quite um quite a lack of support available that appeals to men um, when they're diagnosed with dementia so sporting memories is one of the ways that we can tap into appealing to men and getting more men out of the house and socializing with the other people and engaging with support so okay so it's quite an active that you actually get people to come to you yeah, the groups are based in um, a variety of different settings in the community, mm-hmm. so they can be hosted in sports centres, uh, libraries and other community centres as well. Um, they do do some work in care homes as well, but obviously that um, that's kind of another side to the um, the research that um, I know that Leeds Beckett University is obviously looking into with sporting memories as well, mm-hmm. um, but I'm focusing mainly on the community groups. Okay, and how did the sporting memory thing come about? I know it's like probably you get this all the time <laughs> and it's quite a dated thing, but men seem to do seem to remember football results over like the anniversary with their wife. Is that <laughs> actually true? <laughs> well, I mean, not obviously wanting to stereotype <laughs> men though, but. Um, yeah, I mean it's a it's a massive thing in a lot of men's lives. Sport, yeah. um, definitely football, um, but lots of other sports as well. Mm-hmm. And they kind of form um, formative moments in men's lives. You know, they've got really vivid memories that resonate with with a lot of people as well. So it's not just about looking at people who are, you know, lifelong devoted fans of sport, but looking at what the memories are that they associate with sporting mm-hmm. events as well. So it's it's a way of um, just kind of engaging people with those older memories um, the ones that, you know, are, are a lot more resonant now. Um, and and kind of bringing other men together. So women do attend the groups, mm-hmm. um, but there's definitely a, a greater proportion of men that attend them, and I'm trying to find out why. Yep, OK. And do you involve their families as well? So I know you said it's not necessarily just remembering a football match or a rugby match. It's also associated memories with that. So if you involve the family, do you find that then they also can make links with their family? Yeah, well, I involve anyone that attends the group, mm-hmm. so it's not just uh, the men that are there, but any any wives that attend with them or any of the family members and also the people that facilitate the groups as well because often um, the people that, that go with them and sit among them in the groups notice a lot of, of other features of how it's impacting on that person um, mm-hmm. and, you know, whether there are any changes in them since they've started attending as well. So, um, yeah, I, I look to everybody that knows bits about that person as well. Okay. And this does this link a bit with what you do, Rachel, in that you're looking at how families can help support people with dementia? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the research that I did looked um, just in a different setting, really. So whilst Cara is, is focusing on the community, I was really interested in how much families are involved when someone with dementia goes into hospital. 
um, because up to one in four people in hospital can have dementia and they can often find it quite a difficult place to be uh, and they tend to have worse outcomes as well more likely to die or to go into a care home become malnourished etc so I was really interested in looking at how we could make that experience and care better in hospitals and I was specifically interested in looking at how much families are involved in that and what difference it makes when they are involved. So within a hospital setting is there um, scope for doing what Cara does and holding sort of reminiscent meetings within a hospital setting? Potentially. So I've, I've seen that happen. I think it very much depends on the availability and the interest of particular staff in those mm-hmm. settings. Yeah. And obviously, you know, acute hospital settings are really pressured and, and staff are very busy. But I, I have seen people use reminiscence, um, perhaps having a stock of old photographs or uh, old um, uh maybe say things from from work or jobs or different <laughs> items that people will have used in the past um I haven't seen too much specifically sports based stuff but i'm sure that that would would work as well okay great and alice are you said you've been working on the epic study yeah uh i just wondered if you could tell us a bit about how you have found working yeah <laughs> um so we recruited 50 care homes across uh west yorkshire South London and Oxfordshire, um, which was no mean feat in itself. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was more challenging than we anticipated. Um, and we had just over a 1,000 people with dementia take part with us. Wow. Um, and we still have super secret results for the next couple of months. Yeah, but in terms of actually doing the research, um, we recruited um, people with dementia, where possible a family member and a staff member for every person. Um, so we really got to know as much about that person's life as we could by having those three points of view. Um, I guess what was often quite disappointing was that people didn't have an eligible friend or relative because they needed to visit at least once every fortnight, which doesn't sound that often, but we were, we were finding that for quite a lot of people they didn't even have a visitor mm. um, once every two weeks. Um, we went that into must care have been ho- quite hard to sort of deal with emotionally a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you kind of become resilient to it, don't you? Because you're like... The yeah. first few times you think, like, oh, that's heartbreaking. Or when you've got people who, um, if they don't have capacity to consent, we're then looking mm-hmm. for a relative, and it's like, oh, no, they've not, they've got no relatives, they've got no friends. Wow. And you think, like, oh, this person must have been so lonely before they, come into, they came mm-hmm. into the care home. But I think it helps you to see care homes as kind of a place where people do get social support that they wouldn't get in their, yeah. in their own homes. And I think generally people have a really negative view of care homes, but... For some people, they can then provide them with a whole new set of friends that takes them from a very lonely place to Mm. somewhere where they're surrounded by people who sometimes have similar interests to them, (laughs) sometimes don't. Um, Yeah, what else to say about Epic? We collected a lot of data Mm. and we went into each care home three times for about a month at a time. Um, Did lots and lots of standardised measures, some observations, um, and then interviews with staff members and relatives and some residents as well. Mm -hmm. So you said you were doing quantitative data on this. What is your background before this, did you say? Um, uh, I did um, longitudinal quantitative research, um, looking at predictors of mental health problems in caregivers working in care homes. Cool. So, yeah, I do the numbers stuff in the office. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Pass it to Alice. Yeah. Um, Okay, so moving on a bit, how are your findings from your research being put into practice? I know this is quite a big um, sort of topic at the moment, is how how your research can actually help people. 
how do you think that you're doing Rachel (laughs) (laughs) that's something that we're all really keen on so I think we've all come from backgrounds where we've worked in in care settings in one form or another before I used to be a a mental health nurse and so Mm -hmm. I'm really keen that that the research that we do makes a difference and we all are um the some of the findings from the ethnographic study looking at how much families were involved um were really interesting so we were able to see that when families were involved it could make a real difference to someone's care to how much staff were able to understand the person to communicate with them to recognize um, their needs or perhaps when they were in pain or something wasn't right they deteriorated it was harder for staff who didn't know the person to spot that but much easier for family members um, they were also able to be really involved in decision making but how much they were involved was really variable so mm. it was uh, often down to individual members of staff or how supportive the manager on the ward was of involving families and there were examples of wards where families were queuing outside the door at five to two because they weren't allowed in until two o'clock mm. and a bell was rung at four o'clock for them to leave or there were lots of signs up about you can't come this time it's protected meal times or it's cleaning day on a Wednesday you can't visit then so there was lots of mixed messages about how much families could be involved even though their involvement was often really beneficial so I'm in the process of feeding that back at the moment Mm -hmm. to um, local hospitals to um, lots of staff um, doing quite a lot of presentations um, regionally to um, to hospital managers. um, How have you found the response to what you're doing? Has it been well received? Yeah I I think that you have to make sure you present the positives as well so there were Mm -hmm. really good examples of when people really did um, go the extra mile to involve someone's family and you could mm-hmm. see the difference that made and I think it's it's making sure that you share that and not just the the negative it's easy to focus on the things that weren't so good but I, I think that alienates people and that's not recognizing that actually some you know, people are often trying really hard and and actually working in an acute hospital is very difficult so I think as long as you do that I've had really quite positive responses people mm-hmm. have been really interested the the method um, Cara uses ethnography as well and it's that's really interesting in itself the way that you sit and spend time with people and you uh, because you're there with people with dementia quite a lot um, observing and chatting with them it gives you a real chance to get their viewpoint and Mm -hmm. to understand what things are like for them and I think staff find that really quite interesting because it's hard when you're busying around to stop and sit back and think what is it like for for someone to be here in this ward or in this setting all day so So the benefits of family obviously you've talked about that but Going back to what Alice was saying about quite a few people in care homes don't necessarily have any family, mm-hmm. is there any way you can use what you've learnt from family just to say even one person going in a month that's not necessarily family does have a benefit to a patient with dementia? Absolutely. So whether that's is a family member, whether you're using volunteers to, to mm. spend time with people, what one thing that was really quite stark was how long people spent without anyone to interact with mm. and talk with sometimes, or even if there was someone to talk with, it was just about the care task that was happening at the time and it wasn't on a social level. So that doesn't have to be someone who knows that, that person really well. It's somebody who has the time to sit with, with someone and, and equally sometimes people have, have spent a long time in a care home or somewhere else and there are other people that aren't family who know that person yeah. well so absolutely they can be used as well. Mm-hmm. So it's slightly aside but kind of linking your other work that you do is uh, on people with dementia in hospitals and comorbidity particularly cancer mm-hmm. so that can obviously throw up a whole other... <laughs> Yeah, um, and then you're sort of in a way not stuck in a hospital setting but that is your setting then and that may not be as conducive to family visiting as well I guess that can what sort of impact does that have on 
So, so you're right, it depends, you know, some people are much more unwell than others, mm-hmm. um, whether that's cancer or, or something else. And so that, that does definitely play a big part. Um, we're just starting out on that um, research at the moment, but already we're finding just in trying to, to navigate through where we're going to do the, that project and where we're going to be that, that cancer services are, are so complex mm. that even just as researchers trying to understand all the different places that people might pass through and the different numbers of people they might come into contact with it's incredibly confusing and, and therefore difficult not only for for people living with dementia but also for their families to to have to keep explaining if somebody does have dementia or for the right kind of information to pass from one person to another and they're also particularly clinical environments as I think is quite problematic yeah and I think another problem with that is because this is the first time that we've done a cancer and dementia study in a hospital And it's at what point do you say to people, we're doing some research about cancer and dementia and we'd like to talk to you? Because ideally we want to follow them for as much of the pathway as possible. Mm. But if you've just had this very um, big and probably not very pleasant piece of information being shared with you, you don't then want to be told, like, you've got cancer and this researcher would like to speak to you. So we're kind of missing out in some ways on some of the first part of people's experiences because it can be so traumatic for people to have that diagnosis and then be needing to be retold by their families many Mm. times possibly that they've got the diagnosis and then to have a research team thrown into that as well can be um probably a bit overwhelming um, much not animosity but sort of do you ever have any problems with people not really wanting to talk to researchers have wary of researchers you know put blocks up to in terms of the the ethnographic work I've done, I don't know whether you found similar, but cer- certainly in hospitals, I think families are, were quite aware that often the persons would spend quite a lot of time without anybody to talk to or mm-hmm. to spend time with, and, and the person themselves is often aware of that as well. So I was actually expecting some of that, but was quite surprised to find the opposite, that people were generally really quite keen because they knew it meant that there was someone else there yeah. for that person and okay. someone that would know them. So there mm. were actually extra benefits yeah. to them of taking part that I hadn't really anticipated. Mm. Not It depends, because sometimes, obviously people get bad news along the way or they Mm. take a turn for the worse and so there might be some times when then someone might decide quite understandably that actually they'd prefer not to continue but even then I was quite surprised by the amount of people who still wanted to take part even when someone became really quite unwell I don't know whether with EPIC it was slightly different so I think one of the main problems we have with quantitative research is people trying to say like my family member doesn't fit into this box that you're trying to fit them into and we had to spend quite a bit of time explaining to people like we completely understand that I I know that your relative isn't an individual and I've got to know them and I know Mm. that you can't put them into five tick boxes but equally we have over a thousand people and whilst it would be incredible to be able to tell all those thousand people's stories individually that's not what we've been funded to do and also that's not how we can create evidence for interventions that do or don't work um so I think that was kind of our main challenge and we were able to say to people we've got a process evaluation coming at the end and we'll be able to speak to you about your relative in more detail then we'll be able to really get to learn how you feel their experience has been in the care home Mm -hmm. but generally people can be a bit like you want me to tell you whether my relative's in in a bit of pain or in a lot of pain and I don't know because it's different every day and I want to be able to tell you that but kind of quantitative measures don't always allow for that no whereas I guess qualitative you can end up being a bit more like a counsellor in effect I guess because you can 
you're listening to people tell their stories and talk to you. Yeah, and I, I think people find that quite therapeutic in mm. itself. And actually, particularly when there's something like a hospital admission going on, there's a lot of stress sometimes, there's a lot going on. And actually having a familiar face and someone who understands where you're at and what your particular journey yeah. has been. And I interviewed people more than once, so I, I followed them right through their hospital mm. stay. So actually, I think for a lot of people, they found it really quite useful to have somebody there and and, you're not clinical are you no you're not clinical you've Mm. got more time to spend with them and actually you know they tend to then sometimes also ask you well who do you think you know who should I speak to about this or do you happen to know you know and often because of your background you you do know that actually it'd be helpful to speak to whoever so yeah I think we're really privileged as researchers that people want to share their stories with Mm. us and they're willing to and they just let us into their lives completely yeah and it's one of the things that is amazing about being a dementia researcher Mm. is families just welcome you completely yeah. into their lives yeah but it takes you by surprise sometimes though we were talking about this earlier weren't we as well that, that there's lots of things that come along with that that you maybe don't expect beforehand like being asked for advice and how much you know advice should you give yeah. or how when do you you know direct people on to somebody else mm. or sometimes you find yourself in situations you just hadn't anticipated before yeah. <laughs> mm. um moving on a little bit to the what works study which mm. i think Kari, you're involved in yeah Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I worked as a researcher on the What Works study from um, early in 2015 right the way through until we um, actually finished up the full report for it, which would have been last September. So um, the What Works study was a um, Department of Health-funded project and um, it had been commissioned by Health Education England with um, Skills for Health and Skills for Care. So they had asked for us to find out what the most effective ingredients were to um, delivering dementia training and education programmes for um, everyone across the health and social care workforce because obviously it's... hospitals and care homes and... It's all across the board. Yeah, so... I mean, having the the skills and the knowledge and the confidence to um, deliver care to people living with dementia, it's obviously just as important for somebody who's working in a care home, somebody who's working in a hospital on maybe a ward that, you know, isn't a, a kind of comfortable environment for somebody who has cognitive impairment, um, all the way through to somebody who's working in a GP surgery and in um, community pharmacies as well. So we wanted to make sure that we found out what the what the kind of specific needs were and and the best ways to deliver training in all of those settings. Um, so we did um, a total of ten case studies in a variety of different settings. So we had three hospitals, three mental health um, and community hospitals, um, one GP um, surgery as well. It's a it was a collection of GP surgeries, um, and then three care homes as well. Um, we began with, um, we'd done a systematic review of um, all of the um, evaluations of dementia training that are out there at the moment. Um, and we, from that, produced a, a tool um, which is called DETDATS. Yeah. Um, so that stands for um, Dementia Training Design and Delivery Audit Tool. So that's a, a really simple kind of three or four page um sheet that people who are um, involved in commissioning and developing training they can use that to um, just just some tick boxes really to find out whether their dementia training is being delivered and designed in a way that meets current evidence 
for more effective training. Okay, so you, uh, the health professional, would use this to evaluate their own dementia yeah. training in a way? Yeah, um, anything existing or, you know, maybe if they're thinking of purchasing some training to provide to their staff, it's a way of looking at, you know, is, is my training going to fit my staff and fit the needs of, of the people that we're providing care for as well? Um, by looking at things like, um, is it being delivered face to face? Is the group size appropriate? Is the mixture of staff appropriate? All those sort of factors that um, we found um, can lead to better or more effective training. And this output, the did-dut. Literally, what we call it all the time. The did-dut. Have people taken up? Are they using it? Has it been? I'm not sure. We launched it a couple of months ago, did we? Okay. It's not. Yeah, it's not been available very long. Yeah, still in its early stages um, mm-hmm. we've also pr- produced materials that can help um, for, for training providers to m- match their own training along with the um, dementia core skills education and training framework so that's a, a very large compiled list of um, core competencies that staff should have at whatever level of, of kind of care and um, and responsibility that they might have um, as they're working across the, the dementia care workforce. So um, there's obviously different levels of like awareness and having managerial responsibility as well. So people can look at whether their training is meeting those competencies and if they're delivering on the right level as well for their staff. Um, so that's some more materials that we've been okay. able to produce. Um, but I can talk through the kind of main findings of the study as yes, well, if you please. like. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, actual findings. Yeah, well. actual findings, yeah. Um, so, obviously, we um, we had quite a lot of different um, sources of information um, mm-hmm. that we used. So when we were in the case studies, we um, the, it was quite in-depth. So we spent time speaking to staff, um, speaking to managers, speaking to leads of the organisations as well. So we did quite a few interviews in the sites. We also observed training where it was taking place. Um, And we handed staff that had received training, they had questionnaires to fill out to find out whether there had been any change in their um, knowledge and their attitudes towards dementia over time as well. Um, And we spent... Did you run any of the training yourself? Uh, no, we just sat and observed. Okay. So it was whatever was taking place yeah, at, okay. at the site. So there was a combination of in-house training that maybe um, dementia leads had um, put together themselves, and there were some purchased programs as well, um, and some had kind of done a, a combination of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we just wanted to see kind of how it was being delivered as is, so by the staff, because obviously the the facilitators will have had an impact on the effectiveness of the training as well. Mm -hmm. That was something that we found. Um, And it was tended to be more effective when a facilitator was experienced at actually delivering the training, but was somebody that had that skill as a clinician as well, so had that understanding of what their staff were having to um, go through on a daily basis. But we looked at the findings um, on four different levels. So we used we used a framework that kind of looks at how staff reacted to the training, um, what their knowledge was as a result, 
how it affected their behaviour and then what the resulting impact was for people living with dementia and their family members as well. Mm -hmm. Um, We found out that um, staff reacted better when the training was face-to-face and in small groups and had like a variety of different media as well so um having like video vignettes and things like that was always really interesting how how long were the training sessions like on average they tend to be um around an hour but some of them can last for maybe a day maybe more um so that was one thing that i had mentioned actually we we selected the case study sites based on the evidence that we'd already found for the the more effective training components so so we were looking at specifically programs that were um, meeting those criteria so training that lasted for longer than an hour and Mm -hmm. preferably being for for a few days so that kind of helping to really embed that knowledge Mm -hmm. um, and a variety of other factors so we went looking at online only programs because what we found was that having that self-directed learning and stuff that were having to spend time by themselves on a computer um, wasn't as effective as face-to-face learning. Okay, well, useful to know. Yeah. <laughs> I think it echoes what we all know, though, isn't it? Like, yeah. if you've got train, mandatory yeah. training, you're like, click, yeah. click, 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 cross my fingers, I've got eight out of ten to pass yeah. this. Yeah. But I think a lot of these things, they seem afterwards, you're like, oh, yeah, we did already know that, yeah. but to actually hear it and have it distilled in front of you or whatever, or someone say yeah, this is actually a more effective way of learning. Mm. It's, it's, yeah. And I think to have a tool that then you can look, you can use to actually look at the training that you're either providing already or thinking about providing to break it down and for you to be able to, to really sort of pinpoint what it needs to look like to be most effective, it must be really helpful. Yeah, yeah. I think within the tool you could look and if you scored zero for something, so like one of the things being there needs to be some kind of interaction between mm-hmm. um the facilitator and mm-hmm. the people um, who are receiving the training, but also in that kind of in-group discussion, they're things that people can adapt their training to include. So it's not as if if you've kind of got a training package and you think, oh, it scores zero on that, then then I won't use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get it's things that you could be like, oh, well, maybe we could add in ten minutes of discussion, and mm-hmm. there's this point within the training where people could actually talk about their experiences rather than just listen to the facilitator talking about their experiences. Yeah, because yeah, in an ideal world, I mean, a manager is going to want to meet all of those criteria yeah. and being able to actually release staff in reality for an hour sometimes is, is hard enough, mm. um, especially if you well, don't... I was surprised when you said they were a few days long. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we were looking at a combination of, of training that was for maybe um, clinicians that were looking okay, to get, yeah. you know, a more kind of advanced qualification. Mm-hmm. But then if you want to deliver something that is, you know, dementia awareness for a very large group of new staff to your organisation, you're not going to have the time to send everybody off for a full day of dementia awareness training when they've mm-hmm. got all those other mandatory training days that they're going to yeah. have to go on. Um, and, you know, you have to keep people topped up with those as well. So mm-hmm. you're having to send people on training courses every year. It kind mm-hmm. of falls down the priority list mm-hmm. as well. So but I think, Rachel, was it you that said that one in four people in hospital has dementia? Yeah. So and, and on some wards, it's it's higher than that. So yeah. you know, actually, that's... It's part of the point, really, isn't it, is that actually time should be devoted to this because there's so many people 
in hospital that have dementia or maybe have um, cognitive impairment for other reasons mm. as well that are just as applicable. Delirium is really mm. common in hospitals. Yeah. So, you know, well. it's it's not that long since nobody would really have had any training in how to look after someone with dementia at all. So it's, it's important, I think, that there's a focus on it now. Mm. And I think what we found was that, you know, getting more people into training rooms tended to rely on having one quite key motivated person yeah. quite high up in the organisation that could actually make dementia a priority and speak to ward <coughs> managers and encourage them yeah. to and find that time. that must be something that will evolve over time. I mean, you kind of want it to speed up. In it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely. There will be, as you know, as the numbers increase and people become, well, as soon as they become personally involved, I imagine that then makes them... Yeah, and it's about it. changing the culture because... Mm. Um, you know, in, in a hospital building, a person with dementia will encounter not just clinicians and you know nursing assistants. It's going to be porters, cleaners, security guards. Um, you know, there there'll be all manner of individuals who have some kind of impact on that person's mm. stay and their experience. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Just very quickly, because I think we're coming to the end of our time, do you have any advice or tips that you would give PhD students who are planning to focus on delivery of care in care homes and involving families? Do you want me to start? Yeah. Uh, We had a little bit of a chat about this before and tried to condense our thoughts into a few tips. And one of the main ones we thought was... um, it's really important to take time to build relationships with whether it is care homes or hospitals um, or community settings, um, making sure that they understand what you're doing before you go in is so key. Yeah. Um, and on Epic, we had a few care homes where we were kind of struggling to get them to sign the organisational consent form. And on reflection, you think, did they really want to take part or was it kind of that they had someone in the organisation going, oh, you should really be doing research? Yeah. Um And so the more you can explain to people about what you're doing before you go in, the better. But equally, don't send them massively long emails that kind of cite the most relevant research supporting what you're um, putting in place and showing them how excellent you are and that you've been cited in the Daily Mail and you appeared on a different website. Like They they want to know, what are you doing? How much of my staff time are you going to take? Are you going to be in my way? And how practical long are you going to be level. here? Yeah, practical yeah. level. Mm. And I think they want to, they want to understand what you're doing and see why it's important. Yeah. I think, mm. don't they? And how it maybe it's also going to be of use yeah. to them. To justify mm. the time, I guess. Yeah. You need to, yeah. Like what are we as a care organisation or a hospital? What are we getting out of this? Mm. Um, because certainly for like larger studies, you take we take a lot of their time. Mm. And while we are sometimes helpful, like Rachel was saying, we end up in all kinds of situations where it's like, <laughs> oh, can that person spilt their drink and you have kind of blue rolls thrust at you and you go like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Um, we are often in the way a little bit, even though we try not to be. <laughs> yeah. but, that, but that's a good point that we talked about before is about the expecting the unexpected perhaps or just that, you know, you often end up becoming quite a part of these 
um, settings because yeah. you spend so much time there. Yeah. And so so you will get, you know, ad- additional things you might get asked to do or just find yourself doing that you might not mm. expect. And sometimes you end up in situations where maybe you haven't thought beforehand that this might happen and you've got to make mm. a decision there and then about what am I going to do? I mean, certainly when I've sat in hospitals and I think you've probably found similar, you know, sometimes you're the only person in, in, in a bay and you see somebody who's really frail trying to get up who's at risk of falling, for example, and, you know, and do you sit and watch that happen or do you go and if there's no one else there and you can't get help quickly enough, do you, you know, step in and try yeah. and stop that person? And there's, there's scenarios like that that you, you might not anticipate happening beforehand I think the more that if you're planning to do research as a PhD student in some of these settings that you need to go and talk to people who've done it already yeah to yeah. get some advice on what kind of things you might come across and mm-hmm. how you might handle them yeah I think that's good advice to end on so I'd like to thank you all for coming all the way from Leeds and we hope you all enjoyed listening to this podcast recording and please remember to subscribe to the podcast through SoundCloud and iTunes and share via social media using the hashtag ECR Dementia. Thank you. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.